you would again uh, take out your Bibles, and let's turn to Genesis chapter 35, and we will together be reading verses 16 through 29. Genesis chapter 35, starting in verse 16. Again, this is God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Then they journeyed from Bethel. When they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel went into labor, and she had hard labor. And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for you have another son. And as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Ben-Oni, but his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died, and she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. It is the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Eder. While Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine. And Israel heard of it. Now the sons of Jacob were twelve. The sons of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Ishakar, and Zebulun. The sons of Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin. The sons of Bilhar, Rachel's servant, Dan, and Nephtali. The sons of Zilpah, Leah's servant, Gad, and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob, who were born to him in Padam Aram. And Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, or Kiriath Arava, that is, Hebrew, where Abram, Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were 180, and Isaac breathed his last, and he died, and was gathered to his people, old and full of days, and his son Esau and Jacob buried him. The grass withers. The flower falls, but the word of our God remains forever. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for this reading of your word. We ask now, O God, that you grant to us ears to hear. We pray for this, your servant, that what is taught here is your truth, and that we might unpack this passage and apply it to our lives. Be with us, we ask. Bless us, we pray. In Jesus' name and for his sake, amen. Uh, Now, uh, some of you might remember uh, where we began in this study of Genesis. I know there's a number of us that are are newer uh, to the church here, but some of you might remember that Genesis is structured around ten toldos, that is, ten literary units which are signaled by a Hebrew phrase or actually Hebrew word that is told off. And that word means these are the generations of. And so the told off that we've begun or we've been studying it actually began back in chapter 25 and really has been the story of Isaac or should have been rather the story of Isaac, the son of Abraham, but really has been the story of Jacob. Now, in some respects, 
what there is of the story of Isaac has been absorbed into the story of Jacob. And there's a sense in which it seems like Isaac is sort of passed over. And the story of Jacob becomes centered. Now the story of Isaac, of course, was filled with conflict. Isaac had conflict with his wife. He had conflict with Abimelech. He had conflict between his two sons. And the conflict between those sons is solved, it seems, by sending one of them away. So Jacob was brought up and lived in a world of conflict. And he participated in that conflict. And yet God marvelously transformed him at Bethel. Covenant promises made to Abraham and to Isaac have come to him as well. And now he has returned to the promised land where he, has been, where he would be reunited with his father before Isaac passes into glory. Now, Throughout all of this, what is displayed is God's faithfulness. Even despite the weakness of his people, Isaac is passing off the scene just as Abraham had passed off the scene. And the mantle of leadership is being prepared for the next generation of leaders. So the focus of Jacob, though, now is coming to an end. And it will now pass to his sons. With particular attention paid to Joseph, who was providentially used of God... uh, to, to rescue them. We'll, of course, be looking at that in, in the future. And the focus will be on Judah as well, the fourth son, who will unexpectedly take on a larger role and from whose progeny will come the kingly line and ultimately the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so these last verses of Genesis chapter 35 sort of bring together all of the various loose strands of the story of Jacob. All of of the bits and and whatnot from the story of this told off of Jacob. And thus brings that portion of the narrative to a close. And as it does, we will observe three incidents. Three incidents which are bound together by Jacob's itinerary, which then form the structure of our text and sort of bring together all these loose strands. Those events, occur, uh, those events are first on his way to uh, Ephrath. The second is at the Tower of Eder. And finally, you have what happens at Hebron. So those are the three sort of stops on the itinerary of Jacob. Now, by the end of this told off, we'll see that Jacob will have lost his mother. She's already died at this point. He will have lost his father. And he will have lost his most beloved wife, Rachel. The older generation is passing off the scene. The new generation is being prepared to take up the leadership in this burgeoning nation. And in this text, it becomes more and more clear who in that next generation will be the ones to take the leadership roles and who will ultimately be passed over as well. Now, the narrator also includes a list of Jacob's sons. He lists, it's listed in the, in the order of their, uh, of their, their, their rights, 
This is, this, is a, this is fitting as the scene opens with the birth of Je- Benjamin, uh, Jacob's last-born son, and then includes the misdeeds of Jacob's first-born son, Reuben. So Jacob, just even in this, you know, as the various strands are being brought together, Jacob experiences both great joy and heartache. Benjamin's birth brings joy, but also heartache as his wife dies, and further heartache as his firstborn son sins against him. And so, as we jump into our text, Jacob has left Bethel. He's traveling. He's traveling south toward Hebron. Now, the first stop on the itinerary, you'll notice, is Ephrath which also, you know, in some of your Bibles might be in parentheses or it might be set off in some way, but this is also Bethlehem. Now it's, it was here, some distance away from the place that Jacob's beloved wife, Rachel, goes into labor. Now the Hebrew phrase, some distance from, gives the reader a vague idea of where this event occurs. It's somewhere uh, near, perhaps north of Bethlehem, maybe even a little bit north of Jerusalem. We're not really exactly sure where, but so we have a, we have a vague idea, though. Now, the site of Benjamin's birth and of Rachel's burial, though, though not exact for us here, is nonetheless important to the overall narrative and was a place which was well known to a future generation. That site will provide a reference point in the future. And this is made apparent to us here by the phrase, to this day. It is in that, that tomb is there to this day. And it's also, you'll note in other places of scripture, it's actually a reference point in other narratives. So this is a, even though we don't know where it is today, in, in that time they did know where it was. It's also important to note that Benjamin... The final son of Jacob was born in the land. He's the only son, in fact, who's born in the land. He's the only native son, as it were. And although Rachel herself was from outside of Canaan, her final resting place was also in the promised land as the matriarch of Israel's tribes of Joseph and Benjamin. Now, Ephrath, which again is later identified with Bethlehem in Judah, this is the birthplace of Benjamin and the location of the tomb of Rachel, found somewhere along the north-south route between Bethel and Hebron. Now, one commentator suggests that the Hebrew means a two-hour distance, what it says, you know, some distance from it. it you know, he, he suggests it's a two-hour distance. That would be roughly about seven miles if you were to walk Roughly, you can walk about seven miles in, in two hours. That would put, put the birth of Benjamin just inside the land that his tribe ultimately would inherit. So it may be, it may be, that Benjamin was not only born in the land, he was actually born in the very uh, land that he, his own family would later inherit. Well, at any rate, as, as the case is, on this journey... Uh, Rachel is obviously pregnant, and she goes, all of a sudden goes into labor, which often can happen. Pregnancy and childbirth was risky in those days, much more so than her own day. And perhaps the journey itself induced this labor. 
whatever the case may be, Rachel's labor was very, very difficult. Her pains were terrible. Perhaps even more than the usual labor pains. And it becomes very clear very quickly that there's something wrong. She was giving birth, but she was dying. And so at the climax of her labor, when it was the hardest, the midwife offers what is somewhat the standard encouragement in verse 17. It says, do not fear for you have another son. This is the same sort of encouragement that the midwife of Phineas's dying wife also gave to her in 1 Samuel chapter 4. And perhaps in both cases, the midwife knew the fate of the mother. She knew that the mom was dying, and so encourages her, offers some consolation. For she know she is to know that she's been given she's giving birth to a son. Now Notice that in calling Benjamin another son, though, the the midwife was in fact giving comfort. For God had heard Rachel's prayer after the birth of Joseph. Remember back to Genesis chapter 30. Remember Rachel's prayer. Well, you probably don't actually remember that. But here's what she prayed. She said, may the Lord add to me another son. That was her prayer. This is what she prayed at the birth of Joseph. And now God had finally answered that prayer, but she would not get to enjoy that son, for she was to die. Nevertheless, she was encouraged to hear that she was having a son. So in the midst of this, Rachel names this son. With her dying words, she calls him ben which literally means son of my suffering. This is the son of my suffering. Now perhaps for Rachel this was an apt name. However, this was not what his father would call him. This would not be the son of suffering for Jacob. Jacob calls him Benjamin, which means either the son of my right hand or, more literally, the son of the south. Benjamin is the son of the south. Now naming his last son, uh, the son of of suffering, would not quite be right for Jacob. And perhaps this is because this would remind Jacob too much of the painful death of his beloved wife. So we needed a more positive name for this son, so he calls him Benjamin. Now, this is the only son that Jacob actually names. All the other ones are named by his wives or concubines. This, or really the wives, and this is the only one that Jacob names. Now, Benjamin's name is significant for a number of reasons. For one, in Hebrew, directions are given under the cardinal points of the compass as a person faces east. So, north would be the left hand, south would be the right hand. Remember, the right hand is the place of power and favor. So in naming him Benjamin, it it could be that he's he's sort of bestowing on him this idea of power and favor. Certainly Benjamin would be one of the favored sons. In addition, Benjamin is the only son born in Canaan. And remember, geographically, Canaan is south of where all the other sons are born. 
So he really is a son of the South. We also see later in the narrative that Benjamin maintained a lifelong favor with Jacob. Benjamin was a source of pride and also a source of anguish for the father. We'll see this more uh, when you know, Jacob loses uh, Joseph or thinks he's died and he's anxious about Benjamin. Doesn't want to lose both of the sons of his favorite wife. Well, in many, in some respects, then uh, he was both Ben Oni and Benjamin. He was both uh, the son of suffering and uh, the son of my right hand. Now, attention: the attention is paid to the birth of Benjamin and is paid to the death of Rachel, does signal something of the sibling conflict which will occur later on in the narrative. Jacob has special affection for these two sons, his two youngest sons, the two sons who were the sons of his favorite wife, his beloved wife, Rachel. This favor will eventually lead to the selling off of Joseph. Again, we'll see that in the future. Although Jacob thinks that uh, his son had been killed by wild animals. And we'll also see this continual fear that Jacob has of losing Benjamin also. And so Rachel dies giving birth to this son. And we read that she was buried on the way to Ephrath, which is Bethlehem, and Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. And verse 20, again, notes that this pillar is there to this day. That is, that in the day of Moses, and even beyond that, that pillar was still there. Which must mean then that when the children of Israel returned from the Exodus, the pillar was still there, marking the grave. So Rachel's grave becomes something of a geographic marker. It's actually mentioned in other places of Scripture. In, in, uh, it is mentioned by Samuel in his instructions to Saul. Remember when Saul was out looking for the donkeys? And, well, they've been found. But he tells him, go to Rachel's tomb, and then he gives him instruction. It's also mentioned in the days of Jeremiah as a reference point. Uh, it's a, as reference is made to a voice crying out in Ramah. Rachel weeping for her children. And Ramah, by the way, is another reference to Bethlehem. So the pillar erected on that spot becomes a significant marker for the nation of Israel. And here, for our purposes, marks the first stop on Jacob's itinerary. Well, from there, we see that Israel, or Jacob, journeyed on and came to Migdal at Eder, or the Tower of Eder. Literally, that is, the watchtower of the flock. Again, this is another location somewhere between Bethlehem and Hebron. Now, some have suggested that there's a connection with this place and a statement which is made in Micah chapter 4 and verse 8, which references Migdal Eder. Now, the association in Micah and the messianic themes of the book gave some of the Jews expectation that this was the place where the Messiah would reveal himself. And so we have this place. Now, if, in fact, Migdal Eder is a proper name, not just some general watchtower for the flock somewhere, but an, you know, an actual place, 
then this would be a place somewhere near Jerusalem at Solomon's Pools, southwest of Jerusalem, which means this, for our purposes, Jacob had not gone very far from where he had from his last stop. Wherever this place is, whether it's a designated location or simply a tower for watching the flocks, Israel camped at that place. So this was the next stop. Now, we should note, this is not a permanent camp. This is where they had stopped, uh, you know, fed the flocks or whatever they needed to do. They're on their way to see Isaac and Hebron. Uh, there's no, there's no uh, uh, altar that's built there. So this is a temporary place. But because he hasn't gone very far... This perhaps speaks something to the timing of what Reuben does next. Verse 22. While Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine. <coughs> Excuse me. Now, first of all, uh, notice the prominence of the name Israel. Israel as the man and Israel as the clan, all of his family. The nation. This also signals that the misdeeds of Reuben have not only personal consequences for Reuben and his father, but national consequences for this nation. It's, this is going to impact the whole tribe and the whole nation. And so the clan uh, of Israel had not traveled very far after the death of Rachel and the birth of Benjamin. And then, so what we understand is this, Reuben doesn't waste any time. He doesn't waste time with what he is going to do in his wicked deed. And so he went rather quickly, and he lay with Bilhah, the maidservant of the now deceased Rachel. Now, you might ask, why does he do this? Why does he do this? What were Reuben's motives for doing this? seems quite strange to sleep with one of your father's concubines. So why does Reuben do this? Well, first of all, we need to understand that his motives were more than just mere lust. Actually, his motives were quite political. Reuben slept with Bilhah, Rachel's maidservant, in order particularly to defile her. He wanted to make certain that with Rachel's death, her handmaiden could not supplant his mother, Leah, as the chief wife. In other words, in doing this, Reuben was attempting to shore up his own political power. He was shoring up his position in the family, and he wanted to be assured that there would be no rivals to his headship in this burgeoning nation. In addition, this is a symbolic act, which indicated his claim on his father's power and place. Reuben was sure he was going to be the leader of this nation, and he was doing everything to make sure that that was going to be the case. Maybe we could say this, as we've seen throughout Genesis, another example of a man taking matters into his own hands. Reuben is grasping for power, and so he utilizes the typical gesture of usurping those in power by defiling the concubines. In fact, this is the same action which is suggested by Ahithophel to Absalom when David had been forced to flee Jerusalem. 
This is, this is what his son, his son was told to do too. This is what you do. Absalom's, Absalom, David's son, was told to go into his father's concubine. 2 Samuel 16. Here's what he says. And all Israel will hear that you have made yourself a stench to your father, and the hands of all who are with you will be strengthened. Here's how to gain power. Here's how to have prestige. Do this wicked deed. So by taking Jacob's concubine, this maidservant of Rachel, Jacob's favored wife, Reuben hoped to shore up his power, to claim his place, and perhaps even gain the favor of others in the clan who would take his side over Jacob. Keep in mind also that it was Reuben who had found the mandrakes, which he brought to his mother Leah, which in turn brought conflict between the two sisters many years before. The action here may also have been a form of payback for that. But here's, again, there's a lot of strands from Genesis coming together here in this section. Well, this, this misdeed was a horrible, terrible affront to Jacob. What, a, what an awful scandal for the family. But, as strange as that was, observe something else that's quite strange in verse 22, or perhaps something that's not there. It is noted that only that Israel heard it. Jacob heard about what Reuben had done. Oh, well, what does he do about it? Is he outraged? Does he punish Reuben? Does he have strong words for him? Genesis doesn't record here what, if anything, he does about it or says about it. All it says is, and Israel heard about it. At that moment, we don't know what Jacob, that Jacob did anything about his son lying with Bilhah. It is only much later that we learn that there was a consequence for this action. And so what does happen? Well, ultimately, Reuben loses his birthright. The very thing he's grasping for, he loses. He loses his place he loses his power even as he was grasping for it. That is given to somebody else. Though Genesis itself does not explicitly state that Reuben lost his birthright to Joseph because of this incident, in chapter 49, Jacob does say this about his son. He says, Unstable is water, you shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Now, 1 Chronicles chapter 5 does provide some clarity on the matter. Listen to what it says in 1 Chronicles 5, verses 1 and 2. It says, The sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, for he was the firstborn, but because he defiled his father's couch, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, the son of Israel, so that he could not be enrolled as the oldest son. Though Judah became strong among his brothers, and a chief came from him, yet the birthright belonged to Joseph. 
Reuben lost everything, where he thought he was gaining everything. Reuben lost his birthright to Joseph, who will end up with two half-tribes. He will have the largest land inheritance, and ultimately he lost the kingship and the strength to Judah. Reuben's political maneuverings had backfired spectacularly. The leadership of Israel, though, was coming more and more into focus. Luther, in commenting on this passage, noticed the dissonance between Reuben's regard for his father, Jacob, and God's regard for Jacob. Reuben brings shame to his father, This comes on the heels of God bestowing the honored name of Israel upon him. The affront then brought against Jacob was not just against Jacob. Reuben had brought an affront against God himself. And not only that, not only had Reuben defiled his father and his father's concubine, he had defiled himself. For he was guilty of incest. And fornication. Although Bilhah was not Leah's sister, she had acted as a surrogate for Rachel. And so what Reuben is guilty of, according to the Levitical law, was incest. Having relations with his father's wife, which in the law carried with it the penalty of death. Such a crime cannot go unpunished, according to God's law. And yet, Jacob is silent. This is so very strange. Israel merely heard about it. The gap is hard to miss. By the way, the original readers would have seen this gap too. In fact, it leaves you wondering, what was Jacob thinking? What was he doing? What did Jacob think when he heard about what his son had done? He doesn't say a thing about it until the anti-blessing of chapter 49. And there, he's acting as in the role of a prophet. He was speaking the blessings or anti-blessings from the Lord. Jacob's seeming indifference to Bilhah's defilement is similar to his attitude towards his daughter Dinah's, which leads one to question his moral authority to lead the people. Does he care what has happened to this maidservant? Genesis is closing out the story of Jacob with the picture of a man who has shown himself to be in many respects, in many respects, very, very weak. And this becomes the lead-in to the story of Joseph. Once again, Jacob does not react with the necessary moral outrage at yet another sexual offense. And it really is hard to make sense of this. Other than this, God is faithful, isn't he? Even when men are weak, like Jacob is. Now, in the narrative, it seems sort of strange, perhaps, at this point, to insert, in the middle of Jacob's itinerary, we come to a brief genealogy, with the birth of Jacob's final son, Benjamin, and Jacob now having 12 sons, it is actually quite fitting to, have, to give a summary catalog of the family. In fact, this has actually been the pattern throughout Genesis. After the story of the father is told, and that section comes to an end, there's a genealogy given. 
And so when we read of the death of Abraham, for instance, we read of his family and of his sons, and then Isaac's sons are listed as well. So this is just sort of the pattern. Um, we lose the pattern because there's all kinds of events that happen in between, but this is the pattern given in each of these holdoffs, uh, the generations. So here, the main story of Jacob is coming to a close, and the transition is coming now to the account of Joseph. And that will, of course, take up the rest of the book. And so in this way, the genealogy fits with the pattern. Notice, the sons are presented here first on social ranking and then on birth order. First on social ranking, then on birth order. Thus, the sons of Leah are first, then Rachel, then Bilhah, and then finally Bilhah. God had been faithful to Jacob in making him fruitful with offspring. The covenant promise was being realized and God's goodness is being demonstrated despite the weakness of Jacob. Notice that. That's within all the context, right? God has been so good to Jacob, even though Jacob himself has been weak at points. He's been strong in faith in others, but he's been very weak at points. Sounds familiar to you, doesn't it? Aren't you sometimes strong in your faith and sometimes so weak, so very weak? We're like Jacob. God is no faithful. God's faithfulness is being realized. God's goodness is being demonstrated. Jacob and his sons reside now in the land of Canaan. This is the the land that was promised to Abraham. And again, this is demonstrating God's faithfulness to his promises. The 12 sons of Israel is then also compared with the toldoth of Esau, which actually comes in the next chapter. And there it catalogs the kings and chiefs of Edom. We'll look at that in a few weeks. The orientation of the text, though, is toward the future, towards fulfillment, towards that which is yet to come. Looking forward to God fully fulfilling his covenant promises by his grace. It's looking forward to those things. There is not yet a nation. The nation nation is starting to come, but it's not yet. The land is, is theirs, but it's not yet theirs. It's still under Canaanite control. And yet the promised fulfillment is coming closer and closer. It's coming more into focus for them. So there's hopefulness. Even as these sons would not see the fulfillment of it, there's, there's hope towards what is coming. Now one last note about the genealogy is this. It ends this way. It says, These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Paddan Aram. Uh, some of you might think, well, why is that striking you as strange? Well, Benjamin is included in the list. But we already know that he was not born in Paddan Aram. We had just read that he was born in Ephrath. He was the only native son of the land. So why does Moses include him in this way? Well, first of all, without Jacob having gone to Paddan Aram in the first place, none of these sons would have been born. Additionally, this list may be an idealized account of all the sons having participated in the exodus from Paddan Aram to the promised land. And again, remember, this is being written to that generation who came out of the exodus from Egypt. 
Also, this list is not intended to be exact in the same way that we typically like things to be exact in our modern world. The sons who were born outside the land share the same destiny as those who were born within it. All of them would inherit the land. Again, remember that the original audience reading this account had not yet themselves seen the land. They had just come out of Egypt. In, in, some, in most of those cases, too, they wouldn't actually see the land. Their children would see the land. But the, the Exodus generation could take heart that the land belonged to them and to their children, and it was waiting for their arrival just as it belonged to the generation of those who had just come with Jacob back. So finally, we come to the final stop on Jacob's itinerary. After many years of having uh, been away, spending 20 years with Laban in a foreign land, suffering as an exile, away from his mother and his father, away from his brother, He returns to the land of his inheritance. Jacob finally comes home to his father. He comes home to his father, Isaac, at Mamre. So Jacob's pilgrimage has come full circle. He was back where he had first begun. And so the account ends here with these two men, with Jacob and his father, Isaac, being reunited at last. The the reunion is important, for it announces, once again, God's promise to Jacob. Remember, he had promised to Jacob that he would return to his father's house in peace. And here it is. He has returned in peace to his father's house. Again, demonstrated over and over and over again, God is faithful to his promises. God is faithful to his promises. Isaac had lived a full life. He 180 years, it's quite a full life. And we read that Isaac breathed his last, and his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. So these two brothers, they previously lived in strife. Now they've been reconciled, and they together they bury their father, Isaac. Thus ends an era. Rebecca is gone. Isaac is now gone too. Jacob has his sons. And so attention will return now to them and to what they will do as the nation grows. But first, we have an interlude. The text will describe the family of Esau and the nation of Edom, who will themselves play a significant role in the history of Israel. Well, this told off, which has described the life of Jacob, was an account filled with conflict. We saw all, the, all, all over and over again the, the various things that Jacob was involved with, the conflict that he had. But we also see a man who was transformed, a man who went from being, being Jacob to Israel. And we see the promises of Abraham of fruitfulness begin, beginning to come to pass as he has these 12 sons. God's faithfulness to his covenant promises. Promises which we too enjoy the benefits of. Genesis describes the promises made to Abraham. Being passed down from generation to generation. The promise to Abraham of offspring, of land, of blessings. To the nations is being passed 
from Isaac now to Jacob and will pass also to Jacob's children as well. This covenant promise, this covenant promise of God's grace is crucial. As that promise of his grace, of his blessing has come to us also. Through the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Which is to say that all the threads of this told off from chapters 25 through 35, all of these various threads which stretch across these 10 chapters, they've come together. So do all the threads of Scripture. All the threads of Scripture come together in Christ. All of Scripture is the story of our Savior and His redeeming work cross. From the very beginning, and we saw this when we started in Genesis, God's intention was to save a people for himself. All of the Bible points to this reality, that Christ came to save sinners, that the, that the Lord God of Israel has visited and redeemed his people, that he has raised up a horn of salvation from the house of David. That the promises sworn to Abraham that he would rescue us from our enemies, that we may serve him in holiness and righteousness, has come to pass in our Savior, in our God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus, the book of Hebrews teaches us, is the guarantor of a better covenant, for he holds the office of a priest forever, and therefore he is able to save to the uttermost. Those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. And so, dear congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, be encouraged, knowing that God is working all things according to the counsel of his own will and for his glory. That he is saving his people, that he is fulfilling all of his promises. And understand, too, as we've seen, These promises, the fulfillment of these promises, they come in the context of of difficulties, of conflicts. God is saving his people. He is fulfilling his promises even as there's conflict, even as there's misery in life. Even in the context of strife and uncertainty in this present evil world, you can take comfort in and rest in Christ. Because God's promises are sure. This is something else we can observe and take comfort in. The promises of God and the fulfillment of these promises do come in the context of a fallen world. We live in a fallen world. Jacob, even as he has returned to the land of his fathers, he has been blessed by God. He is now called Israel. It's not like he got back to the land and his his life is perfect. No, he experienced the sorrows of this world. His wife dies. His son, his firstborn son, sins horribly against him. The very moment... Of his great of, his, of great joy, being back in the land, the birth of his twelfth son. He's he's suffering. Jacob lost lost his wife, his beloved wife. 
She names their son Ben-Oni, son of my suffering. And to add insult to injury, his firstborn, Reuben, defiles him, defiles his concubine. Jacob, like you and I, experienced trials and tribulations of his life. He experienced pain of loss. You and I experience the pain of loss. You and I suffer. You and I are sinned against. Beloved congregation, I do not need to convince you that we live in a broken and sinful world, do I? You've experienced it. You know what it is to suffer the miseries of this life. I know many of you are struggling right now under the weight of this in various ways. And so you and I are ever aware that things are not as they ought to be. We also are aware that we ourselves contribute to what is wrong in this world, don't we? For we not only are sinned against, we too sin against one another. We fail, just as Jacob failed, just as Isaac failed, even as Abraham failed. And yet, God is faithful to his people. A people that he called out of darkness into his life. Even the terrible sin of Reuben could not thwart God's promises. Certainly there were consequences for him, but it did not destroy God's plans. And so that's a comfort to us as well. Over and over again, and we've seen this, right? The the providences of God and the promises of God. God's, God's promises can't be thwarted. And so Christian, trust and rest in Christ. Trust and rest in him for your salvation, Gracious Father in heaven, we are thankful for your wonderful mercy and grace. We're thankful that your promises are true. That you do all that you say that you would do. And this is demonstrated over and over and over again in your word. Help us to believe that word, God. Help us to believe that word when we experienced miseries this week. Help us to believe and trust in you when things in our life are going upside down and backwards. Help us to remain in you, that we would trust in your word, your promises, that we may be content and comforted May we give you glory in all things that we do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.